0: Hello and welcome back to Coffee and Consoles, the show where we take a look at your favorite songs from the engineering side and
1: the musical side. My name is John. And I'm Kevin. In this week's episode, numero siete, is that seven? I think it is. We're talking Crossroads, selling our soul to the devil. Not really. Hopefully no uh, soul selling here. Well...
0: It is a new year, and with the new year comes resolutions. So that's right. New year, new you. Did you new make deal a resolution? With the, new deal with the
1: devil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, no, I've never been much of a resolution type. Really, but I just try to refresh myself and kind of begin a new. Like you know, maybe some habits that stopped throughout the year, like, like smoking. No, not that one. <laughs> More like you know, regular you know exercise. You know, try to get back into that. So it's kind of like. Resolutions, but not set in stone resolutions. I don't. Right. Yeah.
0: That way, you don't have to feel bad about not doing them later. Exactly. Yeah. Right. How I, about yourself? I, I didn't make any resolutions either. No. But I did start keeping track of my diet, not as a resolution, but last year I did a really good job of being active, but yeah, n- not so good a job of eating. Sure. The, yeah. In a in a way that would help my activeness. So this year I'm trying to do both. You know, it's not necessarily a diet; it's more of just to be mindful of how much I'm eating. Sure, limiting yourself to only five Subway only sandwiches a day, right? Four pieces of chicken per oh, yeah. dinner. Only four chicken <laughs> instead of five. <laughs> That's still whole chickens. <laughs> yeah, whole chickens. No, none of this, you no know, single breaking myself
1: down to just one pint of Ben at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, but John, gosh. it's been. Quite a while. Yeah, for those who may not know, it's been a few weeks since we last chatted. So now we are, as we mentioned, full into the new year, 2020, and as we begin every episode, a toast to the roast. Toast to the roast.
0: Mm. I like the I like the little little, little, the little Hendrix chord. chord at the yeah, end. Yeah, there. there
1: you go. Kind of appropriate. Every every
0: week, the toast of to the roast song will get just a little more jazzy, slightly until it's yeah. just John's jazz minute. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think anyone wants to listen to that. So, what are we drinking today, Kevin? Well, this is
1: from your collection.
0: It's from my collection. I roasted it two days ago. It is a Nicaraguan honey Buenos Aires Mara Cacha. I think that refers to kind of like the region. Or That's like what the we deciphered. Yeah. Probably the region. And and the description of it is it's best roasted to a city to city plus. And if you're not a coffee drinker, what that means is it's kind of best as a light to medium roast coffee. Okay. I like those, that range of roasts. Yeah. Medium. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really good. Tasting notes are uh, coffee and unrefined cane sugar, tart-like lemon acidity, clove cinnamon spiced aromatics, and it's mm. a lovely light-ended roast spectrum.
1: Sensing some of that clove in
0: there. You know, <laughs> with the descriptions, I feel like they just kind of make you think about those flavors. And so you'll, you'll trick yourself into tasting them because it just tastes like really good coffee. I don't yeah, know true. if I can pick out all those individual And flavors. they say, you know, what, 70% of your taste is actually
1: from your smell as well. So the aroma... Mm. It's probably a lot of that too. I believe too. you were
0: referring to the aromatics. The aromatics. Excuse me. Excuse <laughs> me. So yeah, that's well, what we're deli- drinking. It's delicious, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I I enjoyed roasting coffee. It's really easy, and the results you get are really really good. Like you can't buy better coffee than roasting it yourself. And it smells wonderful, right? I actually don't mind the smell. It kind of <laughs> smells like. Have you been over on days that I've. I don't, I don't think so, not it's, yet. It's kind of it's kind of a mix between fresh cut grass and a campfire.
1: Okay. So, so maybe not, maybe depending on you, know, people's upbringing, they might they love m- the smell yeah. of fresh cut grass. Others yeah. it might, you know, bring about like allergic reactions or <laughs> Right, <something.
0: laughs> right. I don't know. I I have come to really like it cuz I know that means coffee the next morning. Yeah, almost like the Pavlov's dog. You start to salivate (laughs) once you start to smell that. Ooh, ooh, you know what's coming. 24 sweet hours, I will have a delicious cup of coffee. Oh, yeah. And it's fun, too, because you can take the same bean and you can roast it in many different levels. Yeah, I imagine that's pretty fun to do. Yeah, it's really interesting because you find that coffee really has a sweet spot, much like guitar amps, Mm. where it's like they're really great between this roast level and that roast level. And then once you get below, above or below the kind of sweet spot, you kind of start losing some of the, the character. Hmm. Yeah, S- stop singing a little bit. Stop singing.
1: Sense. Yeah. I hear you. Well, I nice, man. This might be Very the delicious. first
0: proper coffee talk we've had. Yeah, we made ourselves do it. That's right. <laughs> we've been getting yelled at from really. from our colleagues <laughs> about... The title of the podcast is Coffee yeah. and Consoles, and I never hear you talking about coffee or consoles. Yeah. <laughs> Our very uh
1: oh uh, coff coffee friendly audience is like
0: hardcore coffee drinkers. You know what? If like. you're listening to this right now, I think you you should go get yourself a cup of coffee. Yeah. A nice fresh brew to start the day, or perhaps you're driving home from work and it'll a nice cup to, to end the day. You know, ironically, I was looking for that sound effect in my sound effect library, and I couldn't find it. I thought for sure I would have it. Well, that's why you have me. Yeah. I I can do that for you. We're we're going to... Oh, you need that again? You need some more? Yeah, get it get again. Beautiful. That will now be our sound effect. To accompany the Toast and the Roast song. Copy
1: that, my friend, into your library. (laughs) Perform by John. All the best samples of coffee drinking going on
0: so what's what's new with you john you have a good christmas
1: christmas went pretty well it was a nice combination of relaxation staying home for a bit you know we had i think in the previous episode i mentioned like the in-laws were coming Mm -hmm. over so the ones that you like yes yeah versus the in-laws that we despise that's right no so we had a good time with them went out a couple times to eat and such and then you know between Christmas and New Year's is always that weird time period where even for people who have like normal nine to five jobs, mm-hmm. half the time they're not even really working. They work yeah. like
0: two days out of yeah, the
1: week. Uh, my wife, she didn't really take off any days, but she can work from home. And so she essentially was just staying home. She's able to work from home right. through the computer. So it kind of felt like we were both off. And then New Year's, which uh, you and I, we both were down in Atlanta for New Year's. right, right outside of SunTrust Stadium, which I just heard uh, the name changed. Really? Atlanta Braves Stadium. They just changed the name to. Uh, it was a corporate buyout. I can't. It has. It's like truest or truest. Oh, it's something stupid. Man, that's going to be hard to say. Yeah, if, if SunTrust wasn't already kind of corporate sounding, this is even more so. But I just saw that on the in the news the other day. I thought that was kind of funny. So what you're
0: telling me is we played the last concert outside of SunTrust Park. Perhaps we closed out SunTrust. That was a really cool show. In name For Olympic. For those yeah. of you in the Atlanta area, I guess it's too late to see that show. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, you missed it. <laughs> now, but we play in Atlanta a lot, and there's... a. Oh, probably a reasonable chance we do it again next year maybe maybe not yeah um, it's been two years of kind of cold weather kind of cold weather outside. but outside at least it wasn't raining like the year before that's true but it's it's a great time to do a great job with the event i highly recommend people come on down and watch yeah. the beach drop yeah very f- yeah finger uh finger friendly I'm thinking of like family. a guitar player <laughs> family fr- friendly finger not friendly finger, <laughs> not finger friendly when Dude, it's that would cold be
1: bad out. perhaps uh yeah, family friendly <laughs> event. Yeah, now it can. Now you John, got this. It. Is a family
0: show. <laughs> How dare you? That's what she said. But yeah, it's a good time. It yeah, was a good a, show. Yeah,
1: fun time. Very pedestrian friendly as well. You can just
0: walk around the whole area. Yeah, there's so, restaurants all around yeah. for like maybe two, three blocks. You know, yeah. surrounding the park. And you and I spent a little while in a uh, cigar bar. Cigar bar, bit, and you know. that was right after we played VR. Yeah, like we played a VR game VR too. VR experience, which was that your first time doing? It was my first
1: time. Uh, I think it was my my second time doing the like moving from room to room type of VR. Not the even you know, not the type that like the Oculus right. when you they just control it. Right. put you in a whole, you know, you're like in suit. a maze yeah. in a sense. And just, it was it was awesome. We played intense. an Avengers VR game and uh, last year when I visited LA and I got tickets to do a Star Wars VR game too and. I mean, it's just like I'm sweating at the end of it. You're like battling Darth Vader, and yeah. it's like it's 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 pretty cool. You can it, it was pretty intense. Yeah. It was I will, fun with like four of us
0: that were doing it. I will say I wore my glasses. I think you did as well. And yeah, I, I kind of regretted glasses. wearing my glasses. I I felt like I should have ran up to the room and put in my contacts. If you had them, yeah, it would be a little easier. It would have been a little yeah. easier. And I don't know if it's just because they run those machines nonstop. But I felt like we're, like, one year away from the reaction time, like, getting that, like, half second quicker. Mm-hmm. Not that it was bad, but, like, you know, it wasn't exactly insane. It was like you would do a move and then, you know. Yeah, would there's that split a, second A little lag delay. to catch yeah, up, that, well, you know, which oh is fine. It was still a great time. I'm not trying to persuade you not to yeah. go try it out. It's, I mean, honestly, it's that stuff is
1: probably, like, in the stages that – atari was back in the 80s like there was a lag like moving the 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 toggle switch you know the the toggle stick to move your guy through pitfall is like like, what the heck i moved to (laughs) jump and there's always like you have to like plan when you actually hit the button to jump because you you know grow up you know you know that there's that latency
0: in there but Mm -hmm. but yeah it was it was a great time um i realized i was listening back to some of our our previous episodes and i realized i had mentioned that i might need surgery in Ooh. one of the episodes, and I'm happy to report to yes. everyone what happened. That is not the case. So I I got my CT scan, and is confirmed. Um, I'm totally fine. It was just some inflammation that was really really persistent, and uh, they said all I gotta do is chill, and I'm gonna be gonna be just fine. Wonderful. I've already played two hockey games this year. That's sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, so really thrilled about that. Just wanted to give you a quick update because I realized I had mentioned that and then kind of left everyone hanging. So,
1: All six of our listeners. All six just, of you were um,
0: champing at the bit. Yeah, champing. <laughs> it's not chomping. It's <laughs> now we're just repeating ourselves now. That's right. So this week we're going to talk about Stevie Ray Just kidding. <laughs> no, but in a way
1: we uh, incidentally foreshadowed this episode and last week's episode, I realized. We had a quick little tangent talking about John Mayer doing a version of Crossroads, which, you know, harkens back to Eric Clapton when he was in his cream days and they, you know, recorded a live version of Crossroads as well in San Francisco in the late sixties, which goes back to, you know, Clapton's, um, you know, he, he, Became a big, you know, proponent and fan of Robert Johnson, the Delta blues singer and guitarist, who goes back to the 1930s, and you know, one credited for writing "Crossroad Blues," which it was called back then. Now, most days it's just credited as "Crossroads." But we thought, like from the you know recording side of things, we'd look at John Mayer's recording of "Crossroads" from his battle studies a little on. bit more modern yeah more modern in a very specific approach to the sound of the recording you could say like a very yes. specific thing going on and whether it's something you know your cup of tea or not you know well we'll find out right <laughs> so
0: yeah we're talking john mayer's version of crossroads if you haven't listened to the john mayer version of crossroads we recommend that you do so now yeah, give it a spin. Like we just did. Like we just did. All
1: right. Let's get into it. Yeah. So, this album, Battle Studies. First, like, probably most people, they're familiar with the album. And it came out, what, 2009?
0: 2009.
1: So, it was probably recorded earlier that year, maybe some of 2008 as well. I'm not... Yeah. That's yeah. Seems
0: seems right. Mm. Hopefully it didn't take two years to record. I don't but think you so. You never know. Yeah. Scheduling, touring, all that stuff.
1: And it's well documented that, you know, John Mayer, like for this album, he wanted to, you know, go a different route versus continuum. Cause I think it's fair to say, like, continuum was his like in a sense groundbreaking album that really once that came out, at least to me, it was like oh, that's what you should have been doing. All they like, <laughs> get rid of this. Your body is a wonderland, you know. Uh, right. Kind of teeny pop stuff that he was started with. Like, you know, a lot of people didn't even know he could play guitar. I didn't for years until I finally saw him on, funny enough, Eric Clapton's Crossroads Festival that he'd be throwing. And he had John Mayer on, you know, for a couple tunes. And I'm like, oh,
0: holy, you know, shit. this guy actually can play it because that, Till then, I didn't know. Do you think that because he kind of started with the more pop route, that it kind of soured people's opinion of him as a guitar player later on in his career? I would think that's. I mean, it's probably fair
1: to at least a certain you know percentage of the demographic people you know weren't going to give him the benefit of the doubt at first, and you'd almost have to like win them over multiple times, which right. I think at this point he probably has. You know. Consider, I think by this you know, point everyone kind of realized. Yeah, after Continuum and then you know, Battle Studies, especially his trio stuff when he uh, put out that trio album, which I think was like all live recordings. You know, kind of his homage to you know Cream and the idea of that power trio of guitar, the bass, and trio. drums. Power trio, exactly. So, but he realized like you can't just try to do the same thing. You can't emulate the success and the musical just the musical landscape that was on Continuum. So he just kind of went a different route with battle studies. And I thought it'd be fun to like look at Crossroads, which is, I think probably the only, I think it's the only cover on this album. I haven't gone through the track list again to double check, but I think it's the only one. Everything else is original. And you kind of wonder like, why did he put this? How does it fit? In the album, right, like, what his old blues do tune? Yeah, an old
0: old blues tune, which by that point would have been about eighty years old. But to be fair, Cream had done it in the sixties, and so he'd probably been familiar with that version. Yeah, most certainly.
1: And you kind of wonder maybe what spurred him to uh, include it, but also like do th- such a kind of stripped down and specific approach to it to the recording, which we'll you know get into in a little bit here. So, before we get into like you know the sounds of this on this record, you know the sounds of the track, we can talk about a little bit about the history of crossroads if, uh, you, if you would like to. the yeah. song itself by Robert Johnson, and you know how that influence clapped in, and a multitude of others oh, so he has the notes here we go. I found these notes that I typed up for a class about from like 8 to 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, that looks really official, John. Here yes. I am with uh, some chicken scratch <laughs> on a pad of paper. John has a whole typed out two pages, yeah. double spaced, looking great. When my wife saw
1: this on the counter, she's like, I hope this wasn't a paper that you turned in. I'm like, no, it's just like notes, like a, a layout <laughs> of uh, for a presentation that I gave on Robert Johnson and the influence of Robert Johnson. She was like, oh, that's much better. I was going to say, this is a horribly written paper. Because there's just, you know... It seems as if your thoughts have no connection
0: to one another.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like three-word sentences and, you know, everything like that. So Robert Johnson, from what we know, and when I was researching this back, you know, eight, ten years ago, it seemed to be like as best that we could find. But he was born in 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Mississippi. Yeah. And then he passed away in 1938 also in Mississippi and Greenwood. So that puts him right at that magical age of 27. Ah. Which I I think he's the first one to, you know, die at that, you know, almost uh, cursed age of 27 that many, many other, uh, you know, well-known musicians have sadly, you know, passed away at that year. That kind of that whole 27 curse thing, I think kind of started with him being 27 and since there wasn't much known about his life and he you know grew up in that you know the delta area mississippi the delta being or the yeah the mississippi delta being the area between the mississippi river and the yazoo river which you know going back you know century and plus, you know, that was a lot of cotton plantations were there just because of, you know, the land was fertile for growing cotton. And, you know, obviously, sadly, had a lot of African-American slaves working those fields. And so a lot of, you know, African-American community was just kind of still inherently in that area. And so perhaps, you know, it kind of spurs on the whole, that Delta Blues emergence that came about like cause a lot of these kids were still growing up in the area still dirt poor essentially and you know they
0: find a guitar and just start to sing about the you know troubles of life right one well, they're not i mean they're only about 50 70 years removed from slavery itself so it's, yeah as far it's as possible as far that the they, they know people who were once slaves
1: Oh, especially yeah, those who were born in the early 1900s. Yeah, definitely, probably they're, and essentially, in some ways, they practically are outside of you know, you know, you know besides the name itself. You know, with you know, crop sharing and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, the parents or grandmothers were, pro- they probably knew them. You know, that they were right. slaves, but not to get down that rabbit hole because we are definitely not as well versed or uh, we are not (laughs) qualified uh, to talk (laughs) talk about about that sort of stuff (laughs) but since there wasn't much known about him you know there's these myths that have occurred you know Ah. with robert johnson you know the the way way
0: any good legend exactly
1: you know the the first one totally being that he sold his soul to the devil for his guitar skills Mm -hmm. and of course you know that's uh Traditional story that even you know, goes back centuries, like the whole Faust, you know, that you know, like a scientist who sold his soul to Mephisto, or sold his eternity—the idea of eternity—sold his future to be able to have a more happy present. That whole idea of like, I'm going to give up my, you know, future, my eternity when I die. You know, you can have my soul then, but for the rest of my life, I want to be happy, or you know, I want uh-huh. something that some desire that I want right now. So that's, you know, it's that's been a traditional tale in cultures for centuries. So it's not surprising that kind of gets thrown at him, especially since he died young. Um, I, I believe this one story goes that he was poisoned to death by a jealous husband when Johnson was found flirting with his wife at a dance. Uh-oh. Yes. Yeah. And uh, the husband was actually, like, a, the juke joint owner that they were at. Oh. So so he probably hired Johnson yeah, to play. Yeah, uh, could have been. And he was flirting with his, you know, wife. And I can't, I don't know for sure if that's 100% true or one of those maybe parts of it are true in a sense. Um, but there are actual, at least when I last looked up this, there are three possible grave sites in Mississippi dedicated to Robert Johnson. Really? And I don't think people know exactly which one is which. Well, and maybe, which one maybe, is the real one.
0: all three of them have yeah. Robert Johnson, period. Yeah. How <laughs>
1: jealous was he? <laughs> no Okay. And, but he only, so he's known as, you know, one of the founders of, you know, Delta Blues. And, he, you know, he wrote such songs song as Crossroads, which, we'll, you know, we're talking about. And also, like, Sweet Home Chicago, another popular w- one. It's a great song. Yeah. Yeah. So he only, in the 1936 and 1937, is when he recorded. And he only recorded one time, right? Yeah. Um, it might have been, it was two sessions. Two sessions. Yeah. One oh, okay. was in San Antonio. The other was in Dallas. And he only recorded 29 different songs. Um, 41. It's pretty good for two sessions. Not too bad, Yeah, not too bad. So 29 different songs. Um, and then he did a lot of... Alternate take of a lot of them. So basically, there are only forty-one recordings of Robert Johnson total. Wow! And you know, back when CDs were thing, you you would find I think it was Columbia put out like the complete Robert Johnson recordings on two CDs. Uh, and you can find it on Spotify or I think it's mostly available everywhere. At least one of the takes, if not the you know right. second alternate takes too. And there was some speculation that the those original recordings were sped up by about 20%. Because I was listening back, you know, Crossroads would be an example. The recording of Robert Johnson, the guitar is almost tuned up a half step. Not tuned down, but tuned up a half step. Uh-huh. So he's might be playing an open A chord, but it's sounding B flat, so a half step higher. But everyone, you know, probably at least since... Clapton they play the song in A like being able to use open A so I don't know if maybe perhaps that since it's not fully in tune it's almost in tune it's in that you know microtonal range of not quite being there that maybe people felt like the originals got sped up whether by accident or I don't know
0: it could. It could also yeah. just be the case that the piano he tuned to in the studio was exactly <laughs> just yeah. Little or if hesitant. there was
1: even a piano, right? If, I think one of them was. He literally was in a hotel room, and yeah. they brought the equipment in and recorded them.
0: Yeah, that's you. Um, you would never actually definitively be able to say unless you had a firsthand, you know, account yeah. of. I was the guy who spit up the recordings. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah. I guess that that just lives on in the mythology of the of the songs. It just yeah. adds to it. Yeah.
1: And. So then you have to try to picture yourself being like a young British lad growing up post World War II, happy time, happy time, yeah. Um, and you're, you know it's probably the mid, early to mid fifties or so, maybe into the late fifties or so. And you know most of the music being played, especially over in England, is kind of this like, kind of poppy stuff maybe kind of crooner-esque stuff well, was, there, Very, was a, there was like a specific name i thought for this well there was um, another there was a kind of a a, a folk style that became right. popular in the 50s and especially in england called skiffle is that yeah, what you're thinking yeah, of? i think so yeah, i think i think
0: Lennon started playing
1: yeah the it's yeah the beatles like most of the the original beatles before they became the beatles and when they're you know in the you know what we would call maybe junior high or middle school in high school. They played in skiffle bands, skiffle which bands. you know you'd have a washboard and a one-string bass, if I'm not mistaken. And it's like you can only assume. I mean, sounds like a really bad yeah I, game. I know I haven't actually listened to like skiffle music, so I don't even know if they even like change chords. It's just it's basically very bare bones, like kind of what we would call like just like folk music in a sense, like very um, early folk music so besides that you know there wasn't much else especially like anything that would um, feature the guitar p- prevalently outside of maybe some big band recordings or so or yeah jazz well and even then yeah.
0: you know they were still kind of grappling with the whole feedback problem of the electric yeah. guitar so it kind of makes sense you couldn't really get the instrument loud enough to no, be a feature no. anyway Ex- and especially
1: for electric guitar that yeah, was barely comparing. just starting to be a thing yeah and so if you you know picture yourself like a 12-year-old, maybe 10, 12, 14-year-old early teenager, and you're you know going into the the music stores and you just find these like American import records of these like African American blues players that were being sent, and you listen to it, and it probably sounded like you're listening to something from a com- outer space almost, like a completely different world, like that doesn't sound like anything else that you're hearing on the the radio at the time. And such a, like a, in its own way, a bare bones, um, you know, might just be voice and guitar, but the guitar is jangly and it's like the voice is growling and there's a lot of substance underneath everything that even as a teenager, you probably wouldn't even quite grasp it. It just sounds like this person's like pouring their heart out, you know, singing their heart out, um, giving everything they have and like this kind of crazy, like, shuffle beat on the guitars going on. And that's probably how, you know, Robert Johnson and some of the other Delta Blues musicians kind of a, appeared to those, like, you know, British, you know, young kids who, were like, you know, grab them and like, oh, this is really cool. And so, you know, they're influenced by it, so they kind of want to try to make it their own. That's what, you know, they use a lot of those records to learn the guitar. You know, they'd come out, you know, that along with some of the other, kind of twangy cowboy artists who were out there back in the day. So, you know, it became very influential. So Crossroads probably becomes most well-known in Robert Johnson as, you know, the namesake to it through Eric Clapton. He's probably the one that kind of brought it through the mainstream. And, you know, Keith Richards of the Stones and some of those other British rock stars, I, they got popular. They yeah, but r- Keith Richards was a god. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Clapton's God, as the old saying as the old uh, story goes. So back in uh, so Cream became huge. For those may not realize, when Clapton had some success before Cream, but him, Ginger Baker, and um, Jack Bruce, Jack Bruce, just the three of them, and they just had the
0: first power trio.
1: I mean, that's essentially yeah, the first time that people thought of. Like a band just being a trio and you know the power trio thing came about through cream. But they took the world by storm. Like it's kind of hard to believe these days, but like for just like that short time period, a couple years at that. I mean, it was still during when the Beatles were big too. Like the Beatles hadn't broken up yet. But they just blew up on the scene, um, partly through the myth by that point, as you said, you know, and London, you'd see graffiti
0: on the wall saying Clapton is God. And, right. Well, and there is, yeah. with Cream, from what I understand, there's just a ton of infighting between, especially Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. And even, even when they got together in the, what was it, like 2009? Again, in the same time period, I think they went on a reunion tour. Yeah, the reunion shows. It, even, even still, there's, you know, horrible fighting between Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. And they just, you know, they just mm-hmm. couldn't seem to get along. I, and I don't know. What, if any, Clapton added to kind of the fire?
1: Well, he was probably mostly, you know, come on, guys, higher get, get <laughs> drunk
0: during a lot of that, too, because, you yeah, know, he was already own world, getting into probably, maybe didn't even uh, really have a uh, quite a grasp of how much, you know, dislike had developed between the two. That's all speculation, yeah. we don't really know, but but yeah, it's just interesting, and you know, brain.
1: different things with, you know, um, uh. Jack Bruce would sing a lot too, like, you know, and Clapton would sing. So they were both kind of quasi-dual lead singers. Right. You know, but Clapton um, didn't like to
0: sing. He didn't like he to sing as book. much. Yeah, he, he, he really disliked his own voice, which is astounding to me because he's <laughs> such a great singer. Yeah, like especially in, as he
1: aged. I mean, it definitely matured and developed to a, a good singing voice. Um, But that recording by Cream of them playing Crossroads comes from March in 1968 at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. And if I'm not mistaken, the story goes that Clapton wasn't a fan of this recording, of their performance. (laughs) Really? Yeah, which is crazy because, I mean, we started to talk about this the other day, like how many... uh, Live recordings of a song are out there where that live recording is what people reference when they say, "Yeah, Cream's version of Crossroads." There's no studio version, right? Yeah, there's not many of that. There's day. really not. No. Um, and I was trying to think. Funny enough, you know,
0: another Clapton one that comes to mind would be, you know, his um,
1: "Tears in Heaven."
0: But you could argue that that kind was- of. It was a very small crowd, yeah. And TV thing, it was all mic'd up the way yeah. you would kind of do it in a studio. It was meant to be captured, like, it was like meant it was to a, be captured in the studio, I mean, even though it's could, technically a live recording, yeah. But, and you yeah. could also argue that, like, well, if you recorded it live, then you meant, meant to capture it, yeah. But, but there's a difference, there's, yeah. there's a big difference between just a live recording and we're going to put on a concert for yeah. a recording.
1: Now, so I was trying to think of some other ones, like, you know, how many other. Live takes of a song is that version of the song. I was trying to think, you know, since we're talking about John Mayer here. Eventually, <laughs> um, I think he has that live version of him doing "Free Falling" by Tom Petty. Mm. That's really popular, and of course, you know, a cover as well. I think there's another one too that was in the back of my mind. I, I, would, I guess a uh, Nirvana as well, but their unplugged yeah album. There is several tracks off that, especially his uh. Know his take on where did you sleep last night? Also called In the Pines, which is an old kind of blues folk song as well. That's kind of known for, and it's but it's a similar thing. It was meant to be captured live, but yeah, enough planning went ahead to you know, so it was a good capturing
0: live. It wasn't just like a let's get the board recorded, yeah. never sounds good. I think you could probably generalize and say that there are a lot of songs in the blues genre kind of done like you know bb king and you mm-hmm. know how we can you know all the all the blues guys where a lot of their live versions are almost better than the studio versions yeah because they let loose yeah you let
1: loose the the crowds into it or so like just the sound when you're on stage you know, drums are banging you know the yeah bass is rumbling and there, there are several singing.
0: versions of like thrill yeah. is gone that are live that i like more than the studio version. He yeah. also plays it in a different key. He usually plays it up, interestingly. B. B. He King plays does. it up live? Yeah, he'll play oh, that's it up good. like a half-step. That's usually, it's usually the opposite. I know, it's usually the opposite, but... You know, you'll hear people sing songs in a lower key live. Now, now, now someone's going to find the mm-hmm. time he played it a half-step lower. And yeah, right. it <laughs>
1: just depends on how the guitar is tuned that day. Right. Oh. I
0: don't think BB B. really. He <laughs> didn't. He, he, didn't. He, he wasn't very particular in almost <laughs> anything except for his guitar he was very yeah. particular about lucille but you know oh, he was yeah. like amps there were several interviews well just use whatever they had at the time you know so. yeah yeah i, I, Which I can believe that a little similar to you know kind of discovering you know music in the 50s and in, in england you just you can only find and listen to what what is there at the time
1: yeah that's true yeah whatever is there he's kind of you eat up, you know, what's given to you in a sense. So that live recording of Crossroads then by Cream um, becomes almost like a historical take on that tune and people reference it. Um, but yeah, I was, th- I was about to say, it's like the funny thing is like Clapton wasn't a fan of that performance though. So, um, <laughs> he thinks that they uh, they have a little hiccup during the middle of one of his solos. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty sure I know what he's referring to, but it's actually like, my favorite part of the record, really, of the, of the recording. Funny how that works. Um, yeah, the you know the drums start to do this uh kind of like a syncopated thing that goes right at the, you know matches up with a clap and he goes up to a really high bend, and they're matching. But it, you know it, there is that little shake in time, but it doesn't go out of time or anything like that. But it just sounds really cool. It's probably like one of the reasons why it ended up being on their um, you know they put it on a double album. Um, Back at that time, you know, it was one of the few live recordings they put on a studio album. But yeah, and I guess at the very, very end of that record, you can hear someone say (sighs) something to the fact, something about, you know, Eric Clapton, and then you hear like a kerfuffle, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently he was never a fan of that live recording of Crossroads, which I find amusing that, you know, we can be our own worst critic.
0: Oh, yeah. All
1: the time. Absolutely. So... Clapton then brings us to John Mayer, and John Mayer is, it's, you know, it's been known that, you know, he's a huge Clapton fan, even in the liner notes to Continuum, which we're referencing a little earlier, in the liner notes, it basically says, and thank you to Eric Clapton for not minding that I, you know, stole all your licks or something to that effect. (laughs) So I always thought that was kind of funny. And when you listen to Continuum and you really hear the Clapton influence, especially in a lot of his solos and some of his like harmonized solos that he does, like lead lines that he's harmonizing kind of very Clapton-esque in a sense. And the tones there, that Strat sound. So then he wants to go in another direction for battle studies. And so that brings us to his version of Crossroads. And he references, you know, the Cream's version with the kind of the main riff, which something that Clapton came up with that that little thing that little mm-hmm. doodad that's not really at all found in the Robert Johnson recording you know Robert's not doing that he's just going you know stuff like that in a sense and it's a really cool recording of Robert Johnson's, and it's I mean I can't I don't even know really most of what he's doing. He's kind of has some just crazy like um, responses to his vocal lines. and you know last time we were talking about the call the call and response, that's intrinsic to blues. and you know Robert Johnson's a great example of that. you know, sing his line, then he'd do something else yeah, on the guitar that kind really of really
0: a master of that.
1: Yeah, that answers that. And Clapton's take on it. It kind, he kind of does the same thing, you know. Like, you go, I went down to the crossroads trying to, oh, uh, hitch a ride or catch a ride, flag a ride. Yeah. Fell down on my knees. Yeah, <laughs> try to flag a ride, yeah. Down to the crossroads, try to flag a ride. So that main little riff, he just he uses that as like the, the answer to the lyrics, um, so it fits well. And um, John Mayer kind of continues that riff. You know, he does that on the recording, although he starts to do it more throughout the whole 12-bar blues progression, and he has a very specific fuzzy. Tone that's really dry. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And we're trying to emulate it. I think we're still, we have, probably still have too much distortion yeah, going on. Yeah, we decided with we were
0: a little, little gain uh, heavy, but you know, we love gain. So, yeah.
1: But so I pulled out my one fuzz pedal that I have, which is kind of a homemade fuzz pedal uh, using a schematic from runoffgroove.com, which is like a website that has pedal schematics and probably lots of other things. I didn't build it. I can't take credit for it. I bought it. Bought it from a guy who built it. <laughs> He's like, "Oh, I have this like a B stock pedal version of this, and the schematics are supposed to be um, supposed to emulate like a Supro amp." So oh. that's why it's supposed to be emulating. That's the. So that's sp-
0: fair. When did Supro come out? Because that, that's that's a fairly recent. manufacturing. I mean, now. they
1: go back. You know. You know, Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin was one of the the big names who'd played through Supro amps. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Um Yeah. So at least, you know, back to the... So older than I thought. Early 70s or late 60s at the very least. Yeah, but they had, you know, break up. They had, you know, a certain sound to them. So this pedal's supposed to be kind of like that, kind of like a fuzz pedal that kind of supposed to emulate that. So it kind of, like, you know, close enough for rock and roll. That's say, right. Close enough for government work. yeah. <laughs> Um, and we were discussing what guitar we thought Mayer was playing on this recording. And I think we, and I've tried to search like through interviews of him talking about, you know, recording the album. And I haven't found anything specific, but we think he was probably using a
0: 335. To me, we it think, sounds like a semi-hollow. Yeah, semi-hollow body, Gibson 335. But you can also kind of get that sound if you use the middle position on the SG and kind of roll down the, mm. the neck, pickup just a tad and also kind of roll off the tone just a tad on the, on the bridge. You can, you can get really close to that sound.
1: Trying to do what you just said. <laughs> Middle position. Cause I'm playing your SG right, you are playing I'm my playing SG your, right now. I'm playing your, your Gibson SG, which Actually, harkens we- back to, uh, you know, Clapton. it they're, live recording of Crossroads. He's playing an SG. And we think he was probably using the Simihali body. But the sound is coming from, he talks about in this one interview I found, it's a Pete Cornish pedal called NG2. Pete Cornish. For those who may not know, Pete Cornish, it's like a British boutique pedal maker. I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he goes back decades, and he made custom pedal boards for Brian May of Queen. Um he was known for that. And I'm sure people have probably at, at the very least I saw his kind of logo like Pete Cornish and I'm like, "Oh, that those look really familiar. I've never played through any of his pedals before. But they are expensive. Like if you oh, yeah. wanted to order this NG2 pedal that John Mayer used, I think it's around five hundred pounds. Oh, UK, so that's five hundred pounds, which would probably come out to be, you know, seven hundred fifty, eight hundred dollars, US dollars that is. That's almost on. Yeah. Centaur. Yeah. That's close levels. to the exactly. Um and I was laughing while I was reading their description of it on the Pete Cornish website. It says like this pedal is specifically designed to s- simulate immediate amp death. <laughs> <laughs> Mayer talks about this pedal, and it's kind of funny. He talks about like, how oh, oh, this pedal is so noisy, I could barely use it, but it had a certain sound to it that I' really liked, so I wanted to utilize it for this. He found out that he couldn't really play with a pick for the song, so he ended up just playing with his fingers on the recording, and especially when he gets into a solo for guitar players, you can kind of hear the finger attack, you know that there's kind of a a softness to the attack that you don't really get if you're using a pick at all.
0: Right. It's more of a thud than a uh, Yeah.
1: And it's like it can almost be more of a, a vocal attack too, that flesh on the the steel strings. So he used this pedal, this NG2 fuzz, and he talks about like like there's no sustain to it. It's very hard to play any like he you know tried soloing on the crossroads with a pick, using that pedal, it didn't work. And so he just, you know, went with his fingers and he said you have to play real staccato notes and then it sounds cool and he can you know start wailing on it but it doesn't have much of a sustain to it and you listen to this um his solo on this you know he has some long notes but none of none of them are like terribly long sustain notes you're not hearing a lot of like you know um stuff right, like that like yeah. a B.B. King thing no he's like Know, that kind of almost like almost a herky jerkiness to it, like a almost sounds nervous, like mm. he, but it sounds really cool though. With that, almost like you can picture his hand trembling trying to play it in a sense, it almost sounds like it sounds like this, like scream, not, not a scream, but kind of like a wail going on, like he's in pain almost. It sounds like the guitar is in pain trying <laughs> to, but it has just like a cool tone. And you know, it's a pretty dry recording. If you wanna get into the the sound of this song. Yeah, well we just have drums, bass, guitar, and then surprisingly like the
0: vocal harmonies going on. Like a harmony (laughs) line throughout the whole song. And I think for my money, if if you're not a fan of this cover, I think that's the thing that probably makes you dislike it a little bit. Because it is a little bit different if you're coming from the cream version to the mayor version, it's okay that it's slowed down. Like that doesn't bother me so much, but the, it's the dual harmony throughout the entire song that kind of throws you for a loop. But I'll say once you kind of get used to it and kind of get over it and kind of, you know, realize that this is not the Cream version of crossroads. Mm -hmm. It has its own qualities that make it really cool. You know? Yeah. I think I'd agree. It, it,
1: I think the, as we were talking earlier about the thing that, you know, I mean, people that don't give John Mayer credit, I think it might come down to whether you really like the tone of his voice and how he sings. Sure. And on this one, you get like, you know, three or four tracks of him <laughs> harmonizing <laughs> to himself. Cause I think it's all him on the Probably harmony. Is, I don't yeah. think there's any like guest singers or is there anything like that. Um, So yeah, it, it's, cause it starts off as like very, to me, it just sounds like it's very dry, almost like an in-the-box sort of a sound that, you know, the guitar riff doesn't have much sustain, as he talked about. It's, it's very kind of fuzzy. And you were mentioning earlier when we listened to it, like the drums and the the bass guitar, they just blend together that you... There's not really like a bass line at all. It's all... The yeah. guitar kind of leads it as far as the riff is concerned. The bass is there, but it's just
0: kind of like this like bubbly undercurrent. This, and this really speaks to the genius of Manny Marroquin, who is the mix yeah. engineer. I was going to say, who is that? <laughs> by the way, this album did win Best Engineered in 2010. Nice. Um, so everyone agrees it sounds great. But if you were to solo out the bass, at least if I was to solo out the bass, I wouldn't go, now that is a phenomenal bass sound. I'd be like, "Oh, it's kind of frumpy and like there's not too much definition and like it sounds okay, but you know, it's not not in my mind what I think of. This is a Grammy award-winning bass sound." But the way it blends in with the the song and the and the kick drum especially, it's absolutely perfect. And Yeah, you like it? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's one of the it's one of the key things about mixing a song. It was like it was like man, he pulled up the track and was like, "Okay, that's interesting, whatever." And then was like, "I don't need a, I don't need to mess with this. This already sounds great. It's already, it already needs, it already sounds what it needs to sound like." Mm-hmm. And it almost takes more wisdom and experience to not mess with something than it does to be like, "Oh, this, this needs work." Yeah, you know? that's the biggest mistake. Probably that
1: inexperienced people like whether it's you're the a biggest musician, mistake of experienced, or, yeah. You know, Engineer is that whole we'll, like, we'll
0: call creators because everyone does it
1: sure that's true like that i'd being able to say no that's enough or even if something starts
0: off like like that's how it should be and you just leave it at that and move oh, on well to, this is good but how much better can i make it yeah it's a yeah. really easy pitfall to, to go down into because you know you just end up wasting time and money and all sorts of things but
1: and most of the time you end up Something working worse. your
0: way, <laughs> b- worse, or you end up working your way back
1: to where you started.
0: Yeah, I can't tell and you then how you many tell times yourself, oh, I've just deactivated plugins and been like, "I don't know what I was doing here. I need to yeah. just go back." <laughs> yep. But yeah, I, I think I think that really speaks to how great a mix it is. Just that one little detail, and it almost you almost wouldn't even notice it. It's just one of those things that's just so perfect that you can't imagine it any other way. You know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it almost like. Style-wise, it's almost like a hip-hop
1: song. Like, how the drum sound and the bass sound, it makes you think of it's like it's a hip-hop... Not, you know, it's fairly simple hip-hop beat. But, it's, you know, it's not really a rock, and in a sense. It's not like a rock and roll thing. Especially for the time. Yeah, it's not know. a blues thing, although it's a blues song. It's a 12-bar blues form, quasi. We'll talk about the, the ending of that form in a little bit. But, you know, how the snare snaps... And, right and like it just it sounds like a hip hop beat like to yeah
0: really. and I, I was mentioning before specifically about the snare how there's really almost no bottom end to the snare yeah and no. I was saying again you would you would almost never keep a snare like that if it was say a drum solo where the drums are being featured you like that the snare would be way too thin compared to the the kick drum it would be all out of balance spectrally but again, when, when you go back within the context of the song and and what's happening, it's perfect, you know, like it's, it's really amazing to me, like how he took a collection of sounds that were good, not in my opinion, you know, I don't know if any sound on here is like unattainable to like a normal, you know, person who knows what they're doing, Mm -hmm. you know, but like the way he blended them all together and, and got everything to work with each other, it makes brings them all to that next level. It's like the whole, like, some of the parts, is, you know. Exactly, you know. yeah, exactly. It's like, it's almost like the oil in a car, right? It's like, yeah, it has, like, a good engine and, like, a good exhaust or whatever, but, like, none of that stuff is going to work with each other without the oil. And so, yeah, I don't know, it just... It's it's a really, really great mix. You sit down and listen to it critically, and, like, you you start to realize he he, meaning Manny Mariquin, was able to carve out space for each individual instrument. However, each individual instrument also supports everything else. Yeah, yeah, they're all... And that's so hard
1: to do. Blending together really well.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to take a little bit of time and kind of do a multi-part discussion about mixing. Let's do it. Mixing is my favorite part of the recording process you have tracking well I guess before tracking you have pre-production and you know actually getting the songs in order and then you have tracking then you have mixing and mastering and then you know production and off to retail and I love mixing it's no secret it's what I like to do it's what I prefer to do tracking is fine you know I don't mind it but I have the most fun when I'm sitting in my studio kind of making the track its best version of itself. Sure. And I think one of the most challenging things when you first start mixing is where in the heck do I start? Where do you start? Yes. Well, first, <laughs> I have a plugin and it all it is is a VU meter which is volume units. It's an old-style meter that you would find on you know old pieces of gear and you know consoles and just kind of it's a reference point that's all it mm. is so and usually most like
1: especially i guess most recording consoles like that vu meter is like smack dab
0: in the middle yeah so you can see it top. real easy and with this particular plugin that i use, which all it is is a vu meter you can actually set your reference point to zero in dbfs which is decibels full scale doesn't matter and (laughs) it doesn't matter i mean it matters just a
1: you know decibel full scale what
0: what matters is that you kind of make everything in the same ballpark volume wise so you don't want one sample or or track being way louder or way quieter than another one because that's going to throw off your entire gain stage with the entire mix Mm -hmm. and so what i do is i set mine to minus 14 the reason I picked minus 14 is because I have a mix template that I use, and it has several different compressors and and things that have thresholds that are already set that I that I went through and set previously, and it kind of they kind of just work the best at minus 14. Okay. As far as an overall mix volume, I go for minus 12 dBFS, which is it's not too low that you can't hear it when you send it off to a client, and it's not too loud to where the mastering guy has no room to work with he's then in the mastering stage they probably boost it more than, boost it they'll yeah. boost it between you know a, a folk song or maybe bluegrass will be kind of around minus 10 minus 9 and then when you get into into pop we're talking like minus 8 to minus 6 and then you know we have death magnetic from metallica which is like you know plus 8 is that really? No, that's no. A joke. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no. <laughs> it only goes to zero. No, I think. yeah. But, um, <laughs> like, like you can go past zero. <laughs> no, it's it's loud. It's real loud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I so I start off by going through every individual track and making sure it's hitting right around that minus fourteen level, and then after I do that, I organize all my tracks. Anything you know, group all the percussion together, all the drums, bass, guitars. Uh, string instruments, you know, basically every instrument has a category and they all get grouped mm-hmm. together, they all get color coded, which in case you're wondering, because I know you are, drums to me. Do you have your own color? They're green. System. Ah, Bass is purple, because I, you know, I think it's funky. Yeah. Electric guitars are red, but there's a, there's a little. Because we red hot. No, the more, <laughs> the more gain on the guitar, the more red it is yeah I like that so if it's Ooh. if it's an acoustic guitar, then it's like a really light red and if it's like a really angry guitar, that's a really deep angry red nice piano and string instruments are different shades of yellow and gold vocals are lead vocals are blue and background vocals are a light blue, and then effects are orange and then occasionally you have something random that you have to decide but It really helps. It really helps when you're looking at your mix, trying to figure out what you need to do to kind of have everything. Because you're what you're doing is you're taking all these tracks and you're bringing them down into manageable groups of things you can work with and not get overwhelmed. Yeah, you have to have a system. Oh, it's it's absolutely pivotal. This is the most Uh, important part of a mix. is is just getting everything ready to rock so you can go about your business and not be confronted with a hundred different decisions. That is taking up your brain power when you could be using it on, you know, what's a, what's the best reverb or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So it's, yeah. And so at this point, everything is minus 14. Everything is color coded, organized, grouped. And then I just listen to the song because, hey, I, uh, you know, everything should be yeah. relatively, yeah. it should, it should be a, if the tracking engineer did his job, everything at nominal should be some semblance of a mix.
1: Yeah
0: right. So you listen,
1: just listen to what you're being given. Literally, uh. just listen
0: to it. Don't do anything. Don't, don't start diving in. don't start because fl-
1: don't uh, just start with the the bass drum. Exactly.
0: And, uh. At this point, everyone's going to go, "Well, it's time to work on the bass drum. The bass, you need to yeah, work on the ba- you know it's time for the drums." And no, you don't. Stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. put, put, your, put your you know hands down, hit the space bar, sit back, take a notepad, and listen to the song. Mm-hmm. and while you're listening to the song, what you need to determine is what is making this mix the the thing that makes me like the song. You know, what's what's essentially, what in this song is special? What's unique? Is it the vocal? Maybe it is. It probably is. Maybe it's not, though. Maybe, like I was saying in Crossroads, maybe it's the way that bass and kick drum kind of interact with each other. Yeah. You know, maybe it's the guitar solo. Maybe he has an awesome guitar solo in there that is, like, really the best part of the song. And once you determine that, maybe listen to it once, leave your studio, go out, have a glass of water, maybe, you know, maybe even take a break, go go on lunch and come back an hour yeah. later. Listen to it again. Take Try, a trip to Ireland. Take a yeah, trip to yeah. Ireland. Yeah, Go on vacation somewhere. You know what I say. Come back a week later. I love <laughs> the sound a deadline makes as it whizzes by your yes. ears. <laughs> your, your ears. And can come back and listen to it again. And then at that point you should have a pretty good idea what is making this song great. And then start there, whatever it is. I don't care if it's just the acoustic guitar. I don't care if it's, maybe it is the drums. Maybe, you know, it could be anything. But that's what you need to start with because it's my experience and my belief that whatever you start with is going to be the biggest, most, you know, rocking sounding thing of the entire track. So if you start on that kick drum and you spend three hours on the kick drum, well, the kick drum's going to sound great. But then if your vocals are lacking, that's not a way to, to you know, meet the expectations of your client who happens to be the singer, right? Most often is the case. Yeah. It might be great if your client is the guy who played drums and he sent it off to you. Maybe he's really happy with the mix. Which is funny you mentioned that. Sometimes you can tell, like, like who uh, mixed this? Or, and, like, oh, they're a drummer. Like, right. The drums seem to be 7,000 decibels louder yeah. than everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this takes a lot of practice because sometimes you're wrong. About what you think makes a song great, but it's true, yeah. Most of the time, you're not. I would say it's kind of subjective sometimes. Yeah, but I would definitely say, you know, once you kind of start making this a habit, you get really good at kind of figuring it out. And then, you know, once you make that thing, that special thing, its best version of itself, it sounds huge, larger than life, it sounds great. Then okay, maybe maybe you do have a process where you, you go back and you let's start with let's let's get the rhythm section going really nice, and now let's get the guitars going really good, and now it's mm-hmm. time for the vocals, you know. But there's no rule saying you have to start with the drums. And I would always get into arguments with you know my friends and stuff, you know, going, "Oh no, you got to start with the drums." You got you know, it's like you're building a house; it starts with a good foundation. No, you do not. It that's <laughs> foolish because again, you spend four hours on the drums. You lose all your energy to go work on the part of the song that really matters. Yeah. Sometimes you're not building a house. Sometimes you're building a
1: tree house. (laughs) Right. Or uh, an outhouse in the back. (laughs) Depends on the song. Yeah, so... But generally, there's no hard, fast rules. There's no hard and fast rules. Which is what people hate to hear, especially maybe those who are still learning or trying to, you know, learn the craft. You know, same with guitar, like are no like hard fast rules even though you kind of want there to be to, to be told like okay you do this thing this way and it's correct you don't do this thing because it ends up being incorrect or sounding bad or wrong or yeah sort of, like,
0: I, well as so i would i would agree that there aren't any hard and fast rules but i would say there are some philosophies that are to, good to live by sure yeah you know yeah. one is for sure what i was mentioning earlier get everything organized, dot your, you know, I's, cross your T's, get everything, all your ducks in a row, because that's really going to speed you up and and make you a much better mixer. And then secondly is keep it simple. You don't always, maybe that bass sounds great already. If you go through the song and you pump up everything else and now all of a sudden you, you know, the bass is kind of lacking a little bit. Okay. Maybe, maybe pump up the bass just a little bit or go back and maybe unpump some of the things you kind of you worked on before, I mean, you know, maybe you're doing too much again, you know, just keep it simple. Yeah. And don't be afraid to go back. That's the other thing. Cause very often I'll find myself going down a path and it doesn't work as well as I thought it would, yeah. or maybe it's kind of ruining the song. And so, you know, back to square one. Yeah. yeah. One time also I'll tell this quick story. I did this, I did this, this mix and I sent it to the the client and it was a really sparse kind of song. There wasn't there wasn't much instrumentation. And so I was kind of thinking, you know, if there's any song that's going to kind of live in like kind of verby, delay, kind of saturated world, it's going to be this song because there's not a bunch of other stuff that kind of gets in the way of that. You know, you really have the room to kind of make it like this far-flung verb and like this, you know, this really cool delay and stuff. Yeah, and so okay. I did that. <laughs> and I had it actually spoken to the artist. Um <laughs> this is the second song I worked on. She sent me like a test mix for me and I, I sent it back and she liked it and it was all good. She's so she didn't even tell me I had the job for the album. It was just literally a Dropbox nice. file with the rest of the music in it. So I was like, all right, I guess I have the job and so i'm doing the second song and i was like cool yeah i'm gonna do this really creative thing and i'm gonna you know make it all like verbed out and they'll do all these like delays and like you know side Hmm. chaining and it's gonna be really sweet i can't wait she's gonna love it and i sent it to her and she hated it absolutely hated it (laughs) she actually told like i was like well because we were doing this over text i was like why don't you give me a call let's let's actually have a chat about this because we haven't really chatted too much and i kind of sometimes it
1: takes, yeah, just kind of knowing, if, especially if you're working with a client, like, knowing what they like. It was you the know, first time I worked with this, this yeah. artist,
0: and so, you know, it was like, I don't, I need to know what you want. And so she yeah. was like, you know, I thought you were the guy, but, like, you know, from this mix, maybe not. I I kind of want you to start all over again. And so what I did was I went back, and I literally just turned on the verb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the mix I made on the album. Because <laughs> I, I knew from her from her explanation of why she didn't like it I kind of knew that it wasn't the mix itself that was so terrible it it was just that it wasn't as natural sounding it kind of sounded like a more produced version of what sure. she wanted yeah. And Yeah. so I was like all right go back remove the production tricks and so yeah. if I if I was all prideful and you know I was like no this is awesome would have fought for that verb yeah you know I would have wouldn't have gotten to do the rest of the album so don't be afraid to go back and just
1: Yeah, because some people, it's kind of funny, like, I've had this issue in the past with, you know, whether in original bands or working with whoever, songwriters or so, like, people really want to be creative, but they have, like, a comfort zone, a bubble that they want to stay in. and if you go outside that, like, well, you know, maybe this song, you have, you know, whatever it might be, crazy reverb or, like, you know, reverse delay going on. No, like, no, we can't like, do that. No, I mean. no, not that. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. what if we have, you know, 20 tracks of guitar? Like, no, that's too much. It's supposed to be a stripped-down thing, you know. Yeah. Whatever it might be, you know, people can't get to that other side. And sometimes
0: that's good. Other times, you know, they need to be kind of, pushed along there's a give know. and take yeah for sure and and sometimes as a mix engineer sometimes it's not you're you're not privy to all the band dynamics necessarily so there could be underlying band issues and like interpersonal relationship issues that affect your job you know for instance if the bass player's girlfriend didn't get to sing background vocals on this song and now he's mad at the other band members, he, he hates the song. You know, as a mix engineer, there's nothing you can do to, it sounds like uh, it
1: sounds like Fleetwood Mac actually, right, right.
0: right, You know, so, (laughs) you know, so there's, there's stuff like that. You have to kind of have a thick skin and just kind of decipher what, you know, people are trying to get out of the mix. And I kind of feel, if you just make that song its best version of your, if it of itself, don't don't try to make it. I'm so good at mixing, I can I can transform this song into a Grammy winner. Stop, sure, yeah, just stop. That can't be your goal. That um, can't be your goal. You just have to say this is the song we have, and I'm gonna make it its best version. Yeah.
1: And as you say, like you know, just like listening to the tune at first, you know, there's a lot to be said. Like knowing what you're being given at first, like you know, on this record for Crossroads. Besides John Mary, you have Steve Jordan on drums and Pino Palladino on bass, which is just like that's probably one of the best rhythm sections you could ask for these days. Pino on bass and Steve on drums, like super tight. As you saying, you know, and they're probably going to be specific enough to like the type of sound that they want to get. And yeah. I always want like w- wonder, especially with this recording, how much of it came just from the offset of you know the tracking stage like yeah that snare sound kind of like the the bass thing especially the the pedal thing you know on the guitars you're talking about like sometimes the wrong answer is right you know when by itself sounds awful like he even talks about like i would never use this pedal for anything else outside of this one song for this specific (laughs) thing um which is kind of funny because people say that pete cornish kind of has a, a a blacklist of you know players if they bad talk his pedals oh really apparently like he gets mad if he happens to find his pedals on sale on ebay or that sort of thing like like because <laughs> they're custom built you know for right, each one. Right. So yeah, you know, there's a pride thing there but yeah it's like like you want to use this fuzzy noisy distorted sound on almost anything else like it's just fit for this one thing and you know and that's cool sometimes to kind of have that one very nichey sort of sound yeah one thing for sure for sure um, and i think that's kind of across the board on this song with the how the bass sounds and how it blends in with the drums and as you're saying with the snare drum and how you know nothing's really intentional washy is
0: or, how i would describe it yeah everything very in, intentional. in this song is intentional yeah. which is great there's there's nothing better than getting a collection of tracks that has purpose and an intent.
1: Yeah, you could probably imagine listening to the the dry tracks like you kind of probably already get a sense of like, okay, what was the intent here and
0: Oh you... yeah, I I am confident that, you know, Manny Maroquen pulled up these tracks and I bet the rough tracking mix compared to the final studio version, I bet it's not all that different. Not to say that Manny didn't mix it well or like, yeah. like anyone could have done it, but like he he just just knew when to lay off and what needed, you know, a little bit of shaping here and there. You know, the tracks were good. I mean they recorded yeah. these in, you know, A level recording studios in New York and LA. It's not like, you know, it's not like he was getting sent trash. No, <laughs> not at all. So yeah. In, in a sense it yeah. makes his job easier, but but yeah, yeah. I bet he yeah. pulled it up and had a pretty clear idea and understanding of what needed to happen yeah i could i could probably imagine like he did
1: whether um it was on on his end that he you know shaped the guitar solo a little bit because there is that delay added to the guitar solo which is right right helps to kind of sing out i i I bet he had a conversation
0: with with john and was like Mm -hmm. you know the the notes are a little staccato and there's not much sustain. do you want me to try to you know, get more sustain out of it. And they probably had a dialogue yeah. about... Help fill out the space a little right, bit. Right, what, what he wanted. And the delay sounds great on there. It works. Yeah, it you is. Know? Super cool, yeah. It's something you wouldn't even... It blends in so naturally
1: with it that... You, I mean, as a musician, like, I, it didn't pick up to me immediately until I was listening to it again. Like, it was like everything else is pretty dry, except for that, you know, when the solo kicks right. in. The it's like, oh, yeah, you have that. But even like on the vocals, there's not. I mean, I'm sure there's some verb on the vocals. It's probably a short yeah. verb. Yeah, it's not much. Yeah, I mean, it's especially like maybe for a typical. I guess I don't know. Mayor tends not to have.
0: He doesn't huge, go overboard.
1: No, it's always he always has that kind of up close sound. You know, yeah, kind of wisp- maybe not wispy, but it always feels like his voice is like right there next to your ear. <laughs> right, <laughs> like yeah. He's, you know, cooing you to sleep or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Intentional is the name of the game, I think with this track. I think I only have one other thing to mention about it. What's that? It's um kind of going back to talking about like the traditional 12-bar blues. Like this song, he he adds a little reharm, which is short Musical lingo for reharmonization that, you know, typical 12-bar blues, same with a lot of traditional country music, you know, the old saying of, you know, country music's, you know, three chords in the truth. Well, blues music is the same thing: three chords in the truth, the three chords being the one, the four, the five. And then it's all back to the one. Well, he goes, When he gets to the third line, when it would normally go to the five chord, in this case an E chord, since we're in the key of A, he goes to F sharp minor, which is kind of a cool, unexpected sound. And then he, and this sounds really gnarly with his, uh, kind of that fuzz pedal it goes to. He goes to a D. Have you ever played a D like this? with an open third string, so I'm an open G, like to play chords like that. So you hear that, especially with that noisy fuzz thing. It just, it's so cool and bad sounding at the same time. You know?
0: <laughs> it kind of, it's kind of like what you were talking about when you spoke about octaves. Yeah. You uh, kind yeah. of has those notes real close together and kind of yeah, makes but, it more dissonant.
1: Exactly, yeah. Especially in the lower registers, the more dissonant, those uh, close-knit notes can come across as, yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of a nifty little change he does. Like, he never actually plays an E chord in this tune, even though it's following a 12-bar blues. We never actually hear the five chord, in a sense. And I think that kind of gives it a slight modern twist to it, in a sense, because, you know, traditional blues, same with traditional country music, and they share a lot of roots you have that you know just those three major chords in the key the one four and the five and you know all the way you know any johnny cash records like those you know false prison blues blues is in in the name it's still following those same that same kind of harmonic structure to the point of you know if you play with older players who only know enough to get by and if they're supposed to play a song that has like a minor chord in it like oh yeah, they half the time they don't play it or they skip it or they replace it with the major chord or it's <laughs> like, well, "I don't know that minor chord." Oh, they're just a half step yeah. off,
0: right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Um but, you know, you wouldn't normally hear a minor chord in a 12-bar blues. But here you do. And it, it fits. It sounds pretty cool, though. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, it's it's pretty sweet. The last thing I thought was kind of interesting, Cream's version of Crossroads is Clapton actually throws in a verse from another Robert Johnson tune, Travelin' Riverside Blues. And it's the uh, verse that Clapton sings. It's like going to Rosedale, the uh, the rider by her side, the Rosedale verse, basically. That's coming from, not originally from Crossroads, but uh, Travelin' Riverside Blues, another Robert Johnson original. So just a little... Little
0: uh, trivia tidbit there, yeah. A little if you wanted to, a little uh, change up there in the, yeah. the lyrics, almost similar to "Come Together." oh kinda, yeah, kind of the Chuck Berry homage in that song. Yes, yeah, that we so, were talking about. Seems like seems like yeah. it might have been a a pretty common thing to do for for bands back in the that day that era. Well, then,
1: especially when no internet, and in half the time you just have to go by memory. Yeah, or unless if you sure. happen to have like you know the liner notes with your LP handy, <laughs> you know most of the time you just went by memory. Like, yeah, what are the words to that song? You know, is um makes you think of the movie from last year, uh, Yesterday. Did you happen to see? that? I didn't see it. I didn't you know, see it. It was kind of it was it was it was a good movie. It's cute, it was, you know the whole idea of like the Beatles never existed, but the one guy remembers them. Oh man! And he's actually a singer songwriter too, so he can sing and he can play guitar. So he's just trying to reintroduce everyone to the, you know, Beatles repertoire. Right, so he's right. trying to remember the lyrics and since they never existed, he can't find them anywhere. He's like, ah. so he's trying you know, like Father McKenzie, something in uh, Father McKenzie's writing a sermon. What's you know, what's the damn line <laughs> it's like it, it's kind of funny. So, but that's basically probably what a lot of those musicians in you know, 50s, 60s, 70s even through how the much, 90s, I you know, how, how they had to... Blues, remember
0: classic classic songs changed lyrically because people couldn't it was like a game of telephone
1: oh i ma- imagine all the time <laughs> yeah multiple verses and such the whole <laughs> the whole story of when uh garth brooks recorded the bob dylan song oh um if you need my not if you need my love it's um
0: Friends in Low Places. No, not Friends in Low Places.
1: <laughs> oh, it's uh, the Dylan song that Garth Brooks recorded. Adele did a version too. If my computer would work. I'd... Those who probably know the song I'm talking about. But, you know, Garth talked about... Back then, he was trying to learn the lyrics for it when he was recording it. And the lyrics weren't in any of the liner notes of, you know, Dylan's recording. And so he's just trying to learn from the Dylan recording. And by that point, he's kind of, you know, swallowing his words. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, like, what was that worse again? Is like trying to learn the lyrics to re-record that. If You Need My Love, is that what it's called? I, I honestly have no yeah. idea. Um, it's a beautiful tune, recorded several times. But, but Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I imagine that's, you know... Whether it was intentional or not, throwing in a verse
0: from another song. <laughs> I have to believe it probably was intentional. Uh, but I think, I think that's all we have on, on Crossroads.
1: I think so. I think we uh, met the devil at the crossroads and uh, sold our soul for this podcast.
0: Hopefully so. We <laughs> hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I believe we will have another episode coming out shortly after this one. Kind of make up for the New Year's lull that we had and yeah we're glad you guys are here with us we're uh, going to continue the show throughout the year yeah if you have any comments or suggestions you can reach us at consolesandcrossroads at gmail.com i don't think that was it what you said,
1: you oh, said yeah. consoles and crossroads. <laughs> uh, i was uh distracted to make you feel my love or Make You Feel My Love. That's the song I was trying ah, to think of. Ah. Make You Feel My Love. That The yeah. Garth Brooks, Bob yeah. Dylan
0: cover. Yeah.
1: Coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. Shoot us an email with any suggestions or feedback. Suggestions, feedback.
0: You. Uh, if you have an email, perhaps we'll start reading any we get on the air. It's kind of yeah. do a little mailbag. If you have any definitely engineering-specific questions for me or, or John, or if you have any music questions. But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> We're a... Uh, Eagerly awaiting our first yes. or else we'll, we'll just make up some emails. That's true. And read them. Yes. Joe Walsh, no relation, says,
1: yes. <laughs> You guys are so hot. You have the sexiest voices.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you do. I, I don't think so. Oh, no. I, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> anyway, we'll be back. We hope you enjoyed the show. And that's it for me. I've been Kevin. I'm John. Thanks so much for listening
1: again. Long days and pleasant nights, my friends.